Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless His holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget none of His benefits. He pardons all our iniquities. Yahweh is compassionate. He is gracious. He is slow to anger, and He abounds in loving kindness. He'll not always strive with us, nor keep His anger forever. He's not dealt with us according to our sins, nor rewarded us according to our iniquities. Because as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is His loving kindness towards those who fear Him. And as far as the east is from the west, so far as He removed our transgressions from us. And as a father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear Him. He knows our frame. He's mindful that we're but dust. Father, thank you for these promises you gave us by King David's hand for those who are genuine believers. You certainly have not rewarded us as our iniquities deserve, for we deserve wrath. By nature, you said we are children of wrath, but you are rich in mercy and grace, and you saved us not of ourselves, but through the gift of the Lord Jesus at Christmas, ultimately leading to Golgotha. We love you, our Father, that you would show us such amazing grace that instructs us to deny the ungodliness and worldliness of this age and to live holy and righteously. Father, we know across our nation there's a callousness towards the things of God. People will profane this day and not even take a thought that you are to be worshipped corporately with your people. Father, we can't control everyone, but we can certainly control our own hearts. And so help us to walk in obedience. Help us to grow in the grace and knowledge of Christ. It is heart-rendering, Father. I know not just to you, but to us as your people, as members of your body, to see these churches all across America shut their doors, some churches that were once great churches that were faithful and preached the gospel. God, help us never to lose our vision of reaching people for Christ and inviting people into the kingdom. Let us in this new week be an instrument for you. And if it's in your plan for us to help this church in grace, then we pray you'd make that clear, that you would stir the hearts of the people who have been invited if they need to come. Thank you that you are faithful, that a man plans his ways, but you ultimately direct our steps. Thank you for your word, which is a lamp under our feet and a light to our path. And as we open it this morning, we ask that you'd open our hearts to its truth, that we'd be more than those who just hear the word, but we would be doers of the word, that we might be blessed in all that we do. Father, help me, fill me, and anoint me, and use me, that all who are within the sound of my voice who are listening to this message, that together we might grow in the grace of Christ, and we ask it in his holy name. Amen. Would you take God's word this morning and turn to the book of Revelation chapter 16? You can see from your note-taking outline, I want to address the subject of global warming in Armageddon. We are in that section of the Revelation where we are dealing with seven bowls of God's wrath. And when you come to the time frame that is described in Revelation 16, the dam of God's grace and mercy gives way to His wrath. 
We just read from Psalm 103, the Lord is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in loving kindness. He'll not always strive with us nor keep his anger forever. And so when we reach this chapter in the Revelation, we see that God is not going to hold back in his anger anymore. The dam of his mercy will give full way to his wrath. And we've seen in our study of the Revelation an intensification of God's wrath through this seven-year period known as the tribulation. The seal judgments almost serve like a warning. They're severe, but nothing like the judgments we're studying today. The judgments intensify through the seven trumpets, and then they show their full expression through the seven bowls of wrath. And really, this is a picture, these bowls of the coming eternal wrath. There are different kinds of wrath in the Word of God. There's tribulation wrath, there's current day wrath. We are seeing the current day wrath of God on our nation. When a nation refuses to acknowledge God, the wrath of God is right now being revealed against all ungodliness, and God gives a nation over to impurity. God gives a nation over to homosexuality. God gives a nation over to a depraved mind, and that's where we are moving fast, rapidly fast, as Americans. And so there is the wrath that is being revealed. There is the wrath that will be revealed during the tribulation. And then there is the eternal wrath that will take place in the lake of fire. Right now we're looking at tribulation wrath. And thank God that if you know Christ as your Savior, you do not have to be here for this coming day. Because the next great event before this seven-year period kicks off is called the catching up, the rapto in Latin, the rapture of the church. In chapters 6 through 19, really picture for us a grim picture of this awful time. It is so frightening, you might think that I'm exaggerating, but over and over, not only do you read descriptions of it, but you read assessments of it. For instance, Daniel the prophet, looking all the way down the corridors of time, speaking of this day, said, and there will be a time of distress such as has never occurred since there was a nation and until that time. So what we're studying here in Revelation 16 all the way until the second coming in the 19th chapter is a time of unspeakable horror. Now, for the benefit of those who are new and for the rest of us so that we learn the book of Revelation well, let me just briefly review the context as I bring you into this portion of Scripture. In chapter 4, we witnessed the church caught up as we saw the representative 24 elders worshiping at the throne of God. In chapter 5, we see the Lord who is standing at the right hand of the Father being given the seven-sealed scroll. And those seven seals are described as the wrath of the Lamb. So from Revelation 6, 1, all the way through these uh, bowls of wrath, we find an expansion of the schematic that is given to us in Daniel chapter 9. There was a reason why we studied the book of Daniel before we did the Revelation. It's very difficult to put Revelation together if you don't know Daniel, and especially the ninth chapter. And so if this is new to you, you might want to download on your phone the searchthescriptures.org phone app and listen to the messages at a minimum on Daniel chapter 9. Now, we've seen that understanding this book in terms of its structure will really open it up for you. And we saw that there's a number of heptads in the book. Uh, Heptad is a fancy word for a group of seven. And so there are three sets of seven that run through the Revelation. 
And in chapter 5, Jesus is given the title deed to the earth, what Adam lost through sin that Satan has temporarily regained, as he's called the God, small g, the God of this world. Jesus secured back through his death on Golgotha. Not only did he redeem us, he redeemed the creation. And it is going to be realized that the end of the church age, after the church is gone and the tribulation is complete, Jesus will come and rule over the earth. Now, these three sets of seven, these three heptads, as this slide will show us, um, follows sequentially. So there are seven seals, and those seven seals we saw all took place in the first three and a half years of Daniel's 70-week prophecy. In the first three and a half years, times, times, and half a times, 42 months, different terms to describe each half of the tribulation, you see the seal judgments. In the seventh seal is contained seven trumpets. And there is an event right in the dead center that Jesus said, when you see the abomination of desolation take place, spoken of through the prophet Daniel, just watch out. Because that event opens up the trumpet judgments. And in the seven trumpets, we see an expression of God's intensifying wrath. And then when you finally come to the seventh trumpet, in the seventh trumpet are contained seven bowls of wrath. So three sets of seven. So when we reach these verses in chapter 16, the seven-year tribulation is almost complete. Not quite, but almost. And by the time we reach the bold judgments, we're going to see the final expression of God's tribulation wrath upon the earth. Now, this is a foretaste of what we're going to study in Revelation 20. We will see this morning, it is an expression of the mercy of God for those people who have not yet repented, for those people who are living during this time frame. There are still some people who have not yet repented, who have not yet taken the mark of the beast. And these judgments will be a warning, the last warning they have to repent. But at the end of the seven years, Jesus will come. He will take possession of David's throne. The promises given to Israel will literally be fulfilled just as they were for the first coming. He will rule and reign for a thousand years upon the earth. And finally, his name that has been mocked and scorned and ignored and blasphemed will be given the honor that it is due. For at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue will confess that he is Lord. Now today, we are going to pick up the last three of or the, the, the bowls four, five, and six. We studied bowls one, two, and three in the first seven verses last time. Today, we're going to begin in verse eight. We'll study three more bowls, and then in our next session, we'll study the seventh bowl. Okay, but to give us kind of a running start, let's read the text. Some of you weren't here a few weeks ago, so let me read beginning in verse one. Then I heard a loud voice from the temple saying to the seven angels, go and pour out on the earth the seven bowls of the wrath of God. So the first angel went and poured out his bowl on the earth, and it became a loathsome and malignant sore in the people who had the mark of the beast and who worshiped his image. The second angel poured out his bowl into the sea, and it became blood like that of a dead man, and every living thing in the sea died. Then the third angel poured out his bowl into the rivers and the springs of water, and they became blood. 
And I heard the angel of the waters saying, Righteous are you who are and who were, O Holy One, because you judge these things. For they poured out the blood of the saints and prophets, and you have given them blood to drink. They deserve it. And I heard the altar saying, Yes, O Lord God, the Almighty, true and righteous are your judgments. The fourth angel poured out his bowl upon the sun, and it was given to it to scorch men with fire. Men were scorched with fierce heat, and they blasphemed the name of God who has the power over these plagues, and they did not repent so as to give him glory. Then the fifth angel poured out his bowl on the throne of the beast, and his kingdom became darkened, and they gnawed their tongues because of pain. And they blasphemed the God of heaven because of their pains and their sores, and they did not repent of their deeds. The sixth angel poured out his bowl on the great river, the Euphrates, and its water was dried up so that the way would be prepared for the kings of the east. And I saw it coming out of the mouth of the dragon and out of the mouth of the beast and out of the mouth of the false prophet, three unclean spirits like frogs, for they are spirits of demons." performing signs which go out to the kings of the whole world to gather them together for the war of the great day of God, the Almighty. Now, without a doubt, this is clearly one of the most frightening chapters in all of the Bible. And I know sometimes as pastors, we are, be, we are accused of being negative. And so many not wanting to be negative, they preach continual feel-good kind of sermons. As I told you last time, this is not one of those feel-good chapters and certainly not a feel-good sermon that's going to leave you with a lot of positive squeaks as you walk out the door. But nonetheless, though this passage is positively negative, it's positive in respect that all Scripture is inspired by God and it is profitable. And God told us through His Son at the beginning of this book, blessed is he who reads and those who hear the words of the prophecy and heed the things that are written in it. If you will read, uh, hear with ears to hear, and obey, heed what God has given us in this book, you, your life will be greatly enriched. And so we are looking at a world that has been ruined by man, that has been ruled by Satan, but it is about to be rescued by God Almighty. Now remember, chapter 15 served as an introduction into the 16th chapter. 15.1 tells us, Then I saw another sign in heaven, great and marvelous, seven angels who had seven plagues, which are the last because in them the wrath of God is finished. When these are done, when these seven plagues are let loose, the tribulation wrath is over. Now, let me tighten the context a little bit. Look at 16.1. Then I heard a loud voice from the temple saying, now, don't ever forget, the chapter and verse divisions are helpful, but they can become distracting if, they fail you not, if you fail not to look at the broader context. And chapter 15 is the introduction. And if you remember verse 8 of chapter 15, it says, And the temple was filled with smoke, smoke from the glory of God and from His power. And no one was able to enter the temple until the seven plagues of the seven angels were finished. And so this verse is describing a transformation that is taking place in God's holy temple in heaven. We saw that the tabernacle, later the more permanent structure that we typically refer to the temple, 
is not a building or a tent that was just indiscriminately constructed, but it was based on what God had shown Moses up there on top of the mountain, that the earthly tabernacle temple was a picture of a literal, actual heavenly temple that exists this morning. And at this point in the tribulation, that temple is filled with smoke. And if you were here, we saw that the smoke was emblematic of the Shekinah glory of God. The smoke represents the Shekinah, the holy presence of God that first filled the tabernacle and later filled the temple. And this verse specifies that the smoke from God's glory was so powerful and so intense that no one was able to enter the temple. And so clearly, since no one is able to enter the temple, then the only voice that this can be in 16.1 is the voice of God Himself. Then I heard a loud voice from the temple saying to the seven angels, go and pour out on the earth the seven bowls of the wrath of God. They're told specifically to go and pour out, not drip out. These come very fast and very intensely and without any delay. We're going to see that they come in rapid succession. Last time we saw there was just one brief pause in verses 5 and 6, but one judgment comes after the next. And it's not by accident that in chapter 15 and 16, the term plague and bowls are used interchangeably. Because just like the plagues in Egypt were real, literal plagues, and some of the plagues that we will see here in the 16th chapter mimic some of the plagues in Egypt, you would have to write away what took place in Egypt in order to write away these plagues as well. And just as the plagues in Egypt took place in a short period of time over the course of a couple of months, these bold judgments come very quickly, and they're over a relatively short period of time. Now look at the specific aim again of the first bowl in verse 2. So the first angel went and poured out his bowl on the earth, and it became a loathsome and malignant sore in the people who had the mark of the beast and who worshipped his image. The word sore is the Greek word elkos, and it can be translated as an abscess, One translation describes it as a festering sore. The Net Bible says an ugly and painful sore. The Holman Christians has a severely painful sore. These are running and flamed sores. And so the adjective malignant is put before it. A loathsome and malignant sore, not just on anyone, but on the people who had the mark of the beast and who worshiped the image. God aims it specifically on those who definitively said, I reject God's Son, and I will give my life to the Antichrist as seen by the mark that is on their body. An irreversible, eternal decision, just as when one decides for Christ, he makes an irreversible, eternal decision. But again, this is an indication that God is not desiring for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. For those people who still have not turned to Jesus and yet have not taken the mark of the beast, they will see these judgments. And if they have eyes to see and ears to hear, then some will repent. And so some will look at these plagues and some of the followers will say, look at these followers of the Antichrist. Where is his power now? He can't even deliver these people. 
This one who claims to be a savior, he can't seemingly save anyone. And so they will be able to have no rest day or night. Descriptive terms as well of the lake of fire. Now, as you read the Gospels, you discover that whenever Jesus wanted to heal someone, that person could be healed if Jesus chose to heal that person. But this man who masquerades as a Messiah, who's an anti-Messiah, is a fake, he's a fraud, he is a phony, he is a false physician, and he will not be able to heal his followers, and they will see it because a loathsome and malignant sore in the people who had the mark of the beast and and who worship the image, it will be theirs. Now, when we come to verse 10 in a moment, we will see the fifth bowl of darkness also seems to be aimed at a specific group of people. In either case, in the physical realm, God allows this malignant sore. He doesn't just, you know, pick these, these uh, bowls of wrath out of the air. Well, I think let's try sores today. No, it's, it's, it's planned. It's with a purpose. Just like the plagues that came on Egypt, each of those plagues worshipped a false god that the Egyptians worshipped. They worshiped the frog god, so God gave them frogs and so forth. Well, the malignant sore is an outside picture of what is really going on in the human heart, of how foul and wicked and depraved and rebellious the people will be during this time in human history. We're told in verse 3, the second angel poured out his bowl into the sea, and it became blood like that of a dead man, and every living thing in the sea died. Now remember, there are 21 judgments. Jesus said they are like a woman in labor, where they increase in frequency and in intensity. When we studied the second judgment in the trumpets, it only affected a third of the oceans. This judgment affects all of the seas. When the second bowl is poured out, the waters of the earth's oceans are blood. The New American Standard is so precise here. And this is why a modern literal translation that doesn't seek just at readability, though it needs to be readable, but, but it seeks at literalness as God said it in the text. It says it just as in the Greek text, it became blood. It doesn't say it became like blood. The water literally became blood, and the simile is blood like that of a dead man. Literal blood resembling the blood of a congealing, coagulating corpse. In other words, the sea waters become blood, and what does that mean for all the wildlife? It's all dead. And all the animals that feed off of that wildlife, they are dying. The stench of dead animals, dolphins, whales, fish, everywhere floating on the beaches, washing up. It's just repulsive. And everything is grinding to a sudden halt. And those billions of people who depend on seafood to feed themselves will begin to hunger. Then we're told here in verse 4, then the third angel poured out the bowl into the rivers and the springs of water, and they became blood. Once again, the third bowl is poured out, speaking of the intensity here. And again, unlike the fresh waters and the trumpet judgments where only a third of the waters were affected, here all of the fresh water is affected. Now that's important. When you think of the ocean water, 70% of the earth 
is covered in ocean waters. And when you think of your human body, 60% of your body is water. And without water, you cannot survive very long. And before long, all the bottled water, all the stored supplies, they're gone. The shelves are empty. And you can go about a week without water. And so when we come to this time frame, we're coming to the very close of the tribulation period. This is a comprehensive global judgment. The well water in your backyard will be foul. The river, the lakes, every fresh water source will be turned to blood. And so it's so horrific. It's like the final nail in the coffin. And again, it is an expression of God's wrath and God's mercy for those who have not yet embraced Christ yet, who have not embraced the Antichrist. Again, people read stuff like this and they say, how can God be so cruel? Again, this is a severe mercy. Unless we think that God is cruel, God has two witnesses step up to tell us just the opposite. Listen to the first angel in verses 5 and 6. And I heard the angel of the waters saying, Righteous are you who are and who were, O Holy One, because you judge these things. At this point, John hears one described as the angel of the waters who is reminding us of the fairness and the justness of this particular judgment from God. Angels have a lot of responsibilities. We often think of them just in terms of what Hebrews 1 says, that they render service to us who will inherit salvation, but they are also God's servants to carry out various judgments in the Scripture. And so people may say God is unjust, and this angel is declaring the exact opposite. Righteous are you who, are, who were a holy one. There's no impurity in you. You judge these things properly. And further, he elaborates in verse 6, for they, those who took the mark of the beast, who are experiencing these malignant sores in their body, for they poured out the blood of saints and prophets... And you have given them blood to drink. They deserve it. Don't forget what has happened to the tribulation saints during this time. Millions and millions of people from every tribe, tongue, and nation have been slaughtered for their faith in the Lord Jesus. Most of them, as Revelation 20 will indicate, will die by beheading. And so God is saying, listen, you took their blood. I'll give you blood to drink. Now, wonder, Jesus said, unless those days had been cut short, no life would have been saved, but for the sake of the elect, for the sake of believers, those days will be cut short. Millions of saints, remember there are three kinds of saints in the Bible, Old Testament saints, church saints, and tribulation saints, so context is everything. A saint is a set-apart one, and unlike in Catholicism where just an elite few are given that title, in the Bible, every believer, Old, New Testament, tribulation, believer alike, are given the title saints. 
Because sainthood is not earned, it is not achieved, it is credited, it is imputed to your account, a righteousness, a holiness that is not merited, but is given by the sheer grace and mercy of God. So Christ will first come for his saints, then he will come back at the end of the tribulation with his saints. And so the church is never mentioned between chapters 4 and 18. These are tribulation saints that we are looking at this morning. Righteous are you who are, who were, O holy one, because you judge these things, for they poured out the blood of saints and prophets. Saints, believers, prophets, another term for, for pastors, those who are preaching the word of God during this period of time. When Jesus did the first miracle, what did he do? He turned water into wine. And I'm not here to debate the kind of wine it was. I have a whole sermon on that. It's not like a lot of liberals are saying and evangelicals are saying in this day, oh, Jesus, turn the water into wine. Let's have a drink. He turned water to wine to draw men to himself. But on this occasion, God turns the water into blood to remind men that God is righteous, that he will vindicate his people, that they will indeed reap that which they have sown. And so one by one, God is removing every prop, every comfort, everything that mankind leans on and takes for granted. Then verse 7 adds a second witness, that everything, remember, be confirmed on the basis of two or three witnesses. And I heard the altar saying, meaning another angel at the altar, yes, O Lord God, the Almighty, true and righteous are your judgments. And so this other voice, this other angel, and some of your translations add that uh, because it's implied in the Greek, this second witness stands up and says, yes, God is the Almighty, and he is true. He is righteous. There is no unrighteousness that is in God. Now, that brings us to where we left off last time. So today we want to look at the fourth, fifth, and sixth bowl. And the fourth bowl is a description where the population is scorched. The population is scorched. We read now in verse 8, the fourth angel poured out his bowl upon the sun, and it was given to it, the sun, to scorch men with fire. What we have in this fourth bowl is real global warming, and it's caused by God Almighty himself. Now, science continually reminds us that there is a delicate balance that exists between the earth and the sun that most of us never really think about. As this slide reminds you, Venus, which is the next closest planet to the sun, has an average temperature on its surface of 864 degrees Fahrenheit. While Neptune, which is the farthest planet, furthest planet from the sun, has a temperature of 353 degrees below zero on the Fahrenheit scale. It's amazing how God has orchestrated it all. The sun is 93 million miles from the earth, and God put the earth at the precise distance between that and the sun. If we were closer, we would burn up. If we were too far away, we would freeze to death. God put the sun exactly where he put it. Why? Because he is the creator. He is the master. He is the designer of the universe. And his design shouts his existence. 
And that's why I remind you, don't ever give these lousy testimonies that Christians give on occasion. Well, I said, if there's a God, or I didn't believe in God, or I was an agnostic. No, you weren't. There has never been an agnostic or an atheist on the planet. Now, you may bear that title for yourself. But in the heart of hearts of every human soul, they know there's a God through both the creation and the conscience and His care upon the creation that we live on. For since the creation of the world, His invisible attributes, His eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen. It's not foggy, it's clear. It has been clearly seen being understood through what has been made so that they are without excuse. King David said it this way, the heavens are telling of the glory of God and their expanse is declaring the work of his hands. And so there is a delicate balance between the relationship of the earth to the sun, but somehow in God's providence and sovereignty, that balance is disrupted. Now, science tells us that the sun is like a giant nuclear reactor, and it is so large that 1.3 million of our earths could fit inside of the sun. The surface is 10,000 degrees hot, but our God has surrounded our earth with a band of radiation called the magnetosphere that protects us from that heat and keeps the temperature just like it needs to be. Even the slightest increase, if, if the earth were 100 degrees hotter, none of us could live on this planet. Now, obviously, that would kill everyone, but God doesn't kill everyone, but he raises the heat enough, the text says here, notice, to scorch men with fire. So during this plague, God will either turn up the heat of the sun, or he'll allow more of its heat to get through earth's atmosphere, and people will experience burns on their body. According to the prophet Malachi, in describing the coming day of God's judgment, what we call the day of the Lord or the tribulation, the dark side of it, it says the earth will be like a burning furnace. Perhaps one of the angels allows some solar flares to get through. I don't know how God is going to do it, but the outcome will be awful, and I'm sure there will be forests that will be burning across the planet as the heat increases. Now, I have no intention of making any of tree huggers that are listening to me unnecessarily upset today, but I want to tell you, I recognize, number one, that as a believer in Jesus, I am to be a good steward of this earth, and I'm not diminishing that. When we go to the beach, we always leave it cleaner than we found it. I don't dump my oil from my car into the marsh. I don't like to litter. I am to be a steward of the planet, but neither am I to worship this planet. But neither am I so concerned about global warming as some people are today and as some Christian movements are. Rick Warren, I know he's well-meaning. I know he's a believer. We'll meet him in heaven. But he has mustered together thousands of pastors to fight global warming. That is the wrong emphasis. The emphasis of the body of Christ is to fight the evil one through the preaching of the gospel. God is going to take care of this text will reveal the global warming problem. That doesn't dismiss stewardship, but listen, science is all over the map. This next slide reminds us that in New Zealand in 1912, the leading science of the day said that the planet was getting warmer due to the burning of coal. 
But wait a minute. In February of 1929, scientists from Prague published an article in the New York Times that concluded that the temperature of the world was getting colder. But wait a minute. In 1950, many of you know the name Guy Calendar. He wrote a number of articles in scientific journals, including Scientific American. And once again, he said the globe was getting warmer. But wait a minute. When I was a student in college, the cover of Newsweek and Time magazines, I can still see them and remember the discussion I had with my dad. Uh, the headlines was The Cooling World. But wait a minute. My fears were dismayed in 2009 because the New York Times published an article entitled, Global Warming Could Forestall the Ice Age. Oh, thank God. But wait a minute. I live on a marsh, and people tell me that my property might look like this before too long. Now listen, thanks to politicians and environmentalists who seem intent on cramming down our throats... Global warming, if you are in the realm of science today and you don't embrace it, you just are viewed almost as a heretic. One hotel chain in America removed all the Gideon Bibles, and now they have in their place a little documentary you can read in the side table on global warming. Now, for some young millennials that may be here, because this is almost all you've heard, again, I'm not against the planet. But I'm able to sleep at night. You know, the big talk in the 80s amongst evangelicals is that the world was going to be nuked to death and that we're all going to die from nuclear disaster. Now, as still a relatively young Christian, but I sure knew that wasn't true. Why? Because I've read the end of the story. The world will be here when Jesus comes back. So we're not going to destroy ourselves through nuclear war. That doesn't mean that we shouldn't seek peace. We should. Neither is the world going to be destroyed. Now, there is a form of global warming that is coming that is far more severe than you've ever imagined. Let me read it to you from 2 Peter 3.10. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief in which the heavens will pass away with a roar and the elements will be destroyed with intense heat and the earth and its works will be burned up. Now, in the early days of global warming, women were told, don't use the hairspray. You know, you're adding ozone to the lair and the real green people got all pump bottles and then Mount St. Helena went up and they realized in a couple of hours it put more ozone into the atmosphere than a hundred years of using hairspray could do. So spray away, walk on the grass, shoot a, shoot a deer, you know, take in the aroma of a cow outside and drill for oil. You're not going to wipe out the planet, all right? In fact, God tells me this in Genesis. While the earth remains, which tells me it has an expiration date, God is not going to someday fix up this earth. He will replenish it during the millennial reign of Christ. But if you don't believe in the millennial reign of Christ, then then you've got to deal with the Isaiah passages and so many other prophets in a different way. God is someday going to destroy the earth. He's going to create a brand new heaven and a new earth. But while the earth remains, here's the promise. Seed time and harvest and cold and heat and summer and winter and day and night shall not cease, period. Here's my point. If you're in high school in the 70s, you're afraid of a coming ice age. And if you're in high school today, you're afraid of a global meltdown. And again, if I were not a Christian and had not read the end of the story then I might be despairing and at times depressed. 
We are to be good stewards, but this is my Father's world. He is in control, Father God, not Mother Nature, and He is going to accomplish the purposes for which He has. And God has determined, according to Scripture, that the resources of this earth will continue to sustain billions of people until Christ comes again. Now, I don't know how big your carbon footprint may be, but I do know that you cannot deter, detract, or decimate or destroy this planet because God says it will be here. And in some people's thinking, though, because they are suppressing the truth of God in their minds, they think the creation is more important than the Creator. And they are worshiping the creation. And some Christians are getting dragged into it. Romans 1 warns us, they exchanged the truth of God for a lie and they worshiped and served the creation rather than the creator who is blessed forever. And that's where we are going. It's become a religion in America. We have put God out of our conscience. We are worshiping the creation rather than the creator who is blessed forever. And God gave us over to sensuality. God is giving us over to homosexuality, and now we've entered into stage three. God is giving us over to a depraved and upside-down mind where people call good evil and evil good. People live more to protect their planet rather than they do to please their God. But look here in verse 8. The fourth angel poured out his bowl upon the sun, and it was given to it to scorch men with fire. And of course, when temperatures are raised and people are hot and their body is burning, what do you want to do? I had a burn on my hand not long ago. My wife was away and I heated something in the microwave and I took the top off and I got that steam burn. She's much better at it than I am. And I just stuck my hand under the water. Listen, when it's hot outside and you're sweating and you're scorched, you want to take a cold shower or a cold bath, you want a tall, tall, cold glass of water, but it's all blood. You want to bathe? Bathe in blood. You want to drink? There's nothing before long to drink but blood itself. Men are scorched with fierce heat, but in spite of this, they blaspheme the name of God who has power over these plagues, and they did not repent to give Him glory though the people of the world can connect the dots that these judgments are sourced in God Almighty, instead of repenting, they blaspheme the living God. They do just the opposite of what they should do. And though they understand that God is behind this, they blaspheme. Blasphemeo. Blasphemeo. It's to speak evil of God. It's a wicked, wicked day that is coming. And people are always blaming someone. Adam blamed it on his wife. His wife blamed it on Adam. Adults today are always blaming problems on their parents. Wives blame their husbands. Husbands blame their wives. But there's coming a day when people will literally blame God and they will not repent. They will not change their minds so as to give Him glory. Now notice the fifth bowl. After the population is scorched, beginning now in verse 10, we find the fifth bowl is poured out. And I want you to notice how the beast, a reference to the Antichrist, the beast is plagued. The beast is plagued. 
We read now in verse 10, then the fifth angel poured out his bowl on the throne of the beast and his kingdom became darkened and they gnawed their tongues because of pain. Now you might want to put in the margin next to this verse, Revelation 13, 2, Revelation 13, 2. You will remember in that verse that Satan, we are told, gave Antichrist his power, his throne. Let me read it to you. And the dragon, who's identified in that chapter as Satan, and the dragon gave him, namely the Antichrist, his power in his throne and great authority. So up until now, the Antichrist, the beast, has been somewhat sheltered from direct attack. But when this fifth bowl comes, it's poured out, it's directed at the very seat of the power of the Antichrist. And just like Pharaoh in ancient Egypt was helpless against the judgments of God Almighty, the Antichrist on his throne will be helpless from this plague. God makes it clear that he is superior, that he is supreme over the Antichrist, this false messiah who has his power originating from Satan. The words became darkened, or in some translation says it's, it was plunged into darkness. Actually, the King James is most literal here. It may seem awkward to some, but it's most literal to the Greek. It renders it full of darkness. It's the Greek word skatao, and it's used of a blacky ink darkness. I mean, not just like it's dark outside today, but we're talking about total blacky ink darkness. So dark, nothing can penetrate it. If you were to light a match, you might be able to feel the heat from the match, but you could not see the flame. On one occasion, we were in North Carolina on our way home. We saw this place, Linville Caverns. I said, let's go there. And we went in. Some of you have been there. And we went down in the caverns, and at one point deep into the cave, the man who was giving us the tour said, you are about to experience something that you have probably never experienced in your entire life. He said, for many of you, this will be the first time ever you will be in total black darkness. No video cameras on. We didn't have cell phones back in those days, but we had these big clunky video cameras you're carrying off like this, you know. <laughs> no video cameras on. I, I want everything shut off. And he had the lights turned off. And you literally, you could wave your hand like this, but you could not see it. And my daughter, Grace Anna, who is eight, came up with a little squeaky voice. It's dark in here. Can they turn the lights on? <laughs> and it was dark. And I'm telling you, that's how dark it is going to be. I mean, what if that happened today in this auditorium? How would you respond? I mean, total black darkness, no light at all. So, well, maybe I'd sit here for a second. Maybe I'd try to crawl out the aisle and get outside, and maybe I'd start hitting my, my, my car remote, and I'd hear the horn, but the lights wouldn't penetrate the darkness. Total, total darkness. And again, these plagues, for however long they last, each one, this is not a permanent darkness yet. They're not just pulled out of the sky randomly. God has a plan in each one. And just as the malignant sores was a reflection of the wickedness within man's heart, 
This physical darkness represents the spiritual darkness and the evil that is in the world. Jesus said, men love the darkness rather than the light. Why? Because their deeds were evil. They loved. We speak of agape love as God's love, not always. They agapao, they willfully love the darkness rather than the light. This world will often choose moral darkness over spiritual truth. They will favor darkness over the light. And it serves, among other things, as an illustration of not only those who are removed from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light, but again of how fallen and how unrepentant man is. Because when God brings this judgment, look what happens in verse 11. And they blaspheme the God of heaven because there are pains in their sores and they did not repent of their deeds. The combination of their pains and their sores added to that, the starvation from all the fish that's gone, the lack of drinkable water to the terrible burns, the heat from the sun, the utter darkness. It's a taste of what is coming. Jesus said, speaking of hell, throw out the worthless slave into the outer darkness. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. God is giving them just a tiny glimpse of the eternal wrath that is yet to come. Listen, God wrote of this not just for people who will be pouring over the pages of Scripture during this seven-year period, those who come to faith, multiplied millions. But he gave this originally to seven churchers who poured over it, and he gave it to the people of Community Bible Church because there are timeless lessons here. If you have been saved and you say you really love people the way you do, then why would you not warn people of the coming wrath? Some of us can't remember the last time we tried to take someone through the plan of salvation, much less even invite him to church. And let me say, if you are here and you are not saved, I would settle the issue before you left this building today. And I'd be more than happy to help you to do that. Listen. After the church is removed, those who have heard the gospel in clarity and power will not have a chance to repent during the seven-year period. The only people we have witnessed repenting during the seven-year period are people who have never heard the gospel before in clarity and in power. For God will send a deleting influence that men might believe what is false. Why? Because they loved wickedness more than they loved the gospel. And so they blaspheme the God of heaven because of their pains and their sores. You say, well, you know, if I could just see a miracle today, I would believe. They're connecting the dots. They're saying these, these, these are miraculous works from heaven. But they blaspheme God. Remember on that occasion... When a, a rich man died and he died and went to Hades, to hell, that's where men are today on, in unrighteous Hades. Someday that will be dumped into the lake of fire, but it's an awful place. And he went to hell not because he was rich, but because he was an unbeliever. And in his mind, he reasoned, if just somehow 
someone could go and do a miracle to my five lost brothers, they would believe. And so he says to Abraham, I beg you, Father, that you send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers, in order that he may warn them so that they will not come to this place of torment. But Abraham said, they have Moses and the prophets. They have the Tanakh. They have the Old Testament. Let them hear them. But he said, no, Father Abraham, if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. And then Jesus says in Luke 16, 31, if they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, if they do not listen to the Bible, they will not be persuaded even if someone rises from the dead. If people will not respond to the word of God, neither will they respond to a miracle. Jesus did all kinds of miracles right in front of people's eyes, and some concluded that those miracles were done by the devil himself. The people on the earth who knew these plagues came from God were so resolute in their hardness of heart that all they could do was blaspheme God. The fourth bowl, the population is scorched. The fifth bowl, the beast is discredited. He can't save anyone. And the people are going to recognize this. And this is even those who've taken the mark of the beast. And so that's why the next message is so important. But the, the next plague, the sixth bowl, the war is planned. The war is planned. Now in verse 12, the sixth bowl of God's wrath is poured out. The sixth angel poured out his bowl on the great river, the Euphrates, and its water was dried up so that the way would be prepared for the kings of the east. Now, the source of the water, as many of you know, for the Euphrates River is Mount Ararat. And so they have the snow melts and the water comes down into the Euphrates River. Now, remember what just happened. In uh, bowl number four, there was a rapid melt. And all those snows melted, and there was a rapid dry. So think about all these massive amounts of snow melting at once. What would have happened to the bridges and the roads? There would have been washouts all across the world, at least in this section of the world where the Euphrates is. So what does God do? Well, he, he dries up that river so that the armies of the east, the kings of the east, can use it as a road to march all the way to Israel in order to attack the Israeli people. Now, there's endless speculation as to who the kings of the east are, and people try to name them and all that. All we can say is they come from that part of the world, countries like China, India, Japan. The eastern powers of the world will come together for this final world battle, which we will study called the Battle of Armageddon. Now, when they come, not only will they come, when we come to the 20th chapter, where we will look at the Battle of Armageddon in detail, we will see that there are other nations, in fact, all the nations of the world, that would include USA at that point, all the nations of the world will come against Israel. And I saw, verse 13, coming out of the mouth of the dragon, and out of the mouth of the beast, and out of the mouth of the false prophet, three unclean spirits like frogs. Now, if you've studied the Old Testament passages, Leviticus 11, Deuteronomy 14, where we covered this in the discovery class, 
where we deal with a ceremonial law versus moral law that's unchanging, we learn that the ceremonial law of God was used to distinguish His people. Now God distinguishes us internally. But under the old covenant, before Jesus in Mark 7 declares all meats clean, as Acts 10 illustrates, there were certain foods that you could not eat. They were considered unclean. And they are still repulsive to Orthodox Jewish people today. They do not eat frogs. Now, some of you came to the Wildlife Supper, and we had bullfrogs one year. But no Orthodox Jew would ever touch a frog. Not to mention that frogs themselves were often associated with the occult world back in Bible days. If you remember, there was a plague of frogs that God brought upon Egypt to punish them for worshiping the god Haka, the frog god. So God said, in essence, with each of these plagues, a message, you like frogs? I'll give you some frogs. Well, these are not literal frogs. It's a simile. Notice they are like frogs, In fact, it's further qualified that these are specifically, look at it, three unclean spirits. Now, in contrast to the Lord Jesus and his disciples who expelled unclean spirits, as seen in this satanic ministry, he sends out unclean spirits in order to deceive people. Now, God is sovereign all over this. Satan is not some omnipotent creature. He's created, he's limited. And Luther had it right when he said, the devil is God's devil. This reminds me, you might want to put out on the margin, just write 1 Kings 22 next to this verse. You can go home and read it. Let me just read a couple verses from it. We're told in 1 Kings by God's prophet Micaiah, Micaiah said, therefore, hear the word of the Lord. I saw the Lord sitting on his throne and all the hosts of heaven standing by him on his right and on his left. The Lord said, who will entice Ahab to go up and fall at Ramoth Gilead? And one said this, while another said that. Then a spirit came forward and stood before the Lord and said, I will entice him. The Lord said to him, how? And he said, I will go out and be a deceiving spirit in the mouth of all the prophets. Then he said, you are to entice him and also prevail. Go and do so. Now, therefore, behold, the Lord has put a deceiving spirit in the mouth of all these prophets, and the Lord has proclaimed disaster against you. King Ahab, if you remember, and others found it incredibly difficult to believe that 400 prophets could be right or have one view, and Micaiah, this one lone prophet, had a different view. He went by the majority of you, and that's what a lot of people are doing in America today. More and more pulpits, you want to go out and get buzzed? Go ahead. Enjoy it. Have a glass of wine. My own seminary turned on me. Dallas Seminary. For a hundred years, some of the greatest biblical scholars said it was wrong that we should practice abstinence, but now they've been enlightened. How pathetic. You want to be gay? Go ahead. We got two churches in this town that will perform a gay marriage for you. You want to be transgender? Go ahead. And more and more pulpits will tell you what you want to hear. And so here's Ahab. 400 prophets are telling me one thing, and you're telling me another. You see, King Ahab didn't want to obey God. 
He did not want to receive the truth, so God allowed him to be deceived because he rejected the truth. That's what's happening here. From the mouth of the dragon, from the mouth of the beast, and from the mouth of the false prophet. Or we might say from the lying mouth of Satan, he's the dragon. From the lying mouth of of the, the Antichrist, he's the beast. And from the lying mouth of the false prophet, from this unholy trinity, three unholy demons come to deceive the world. These three send out three false angels, three fallen spirits. And they will convince the kings of the earth to march up that dried Euphrates River right up to Armageddon. John elaborates in verse 14, for they are spirits of demons performing signs which go out to the kings of the whole world to gather them together for the war of the great day of God the Almighty. Now, please notice verse 14. It ends by referring to this time as the great day of God the Almighty. This coming day will no longer be the great day of man. This will no longer be the great day of the God of this world. This will no longer be the great day of the Antichrist. This will be the great day of God Almighty. Remember, Paul tells us in 2 Thessalonians 2 that because of man's rebellion, God will send upon them a deluding influence that they might believe what is false. And this is one such example where the kings of the east march up that drive riverbed and we will see to their own slaughter. Satan will have one final anti-Semitic worldwide in nature assault against the people of Israel. And not only is it described here, it is described in the prophet Zechariah. We'll come to that. Now, all Scripture is God-breathed, and it is profitable. And God wrote this not again just for those people who are pouring over the pages as newly found believers in Christ during the Great Tribulation, but He wrote it for us. So what is the profit of this future time for us? Let me draw from this text three timeless principles for us to take home and to think about. Number one, there's the principle concerning the nature of man. There's the principle concerning the nature of man. I was just struck afresh this week as I read this portion of Scripture of man's reaction to these plagues that come, how they raise their fist in the face of God and mock Him. And it's really a window into the human heart. There are those who say, well, man's not all that bad, that man is basically good. But God teaches that man is depraved and that his depravity is not partial, it is total, that he is totally depraved. The doctrine of total depravity is illustrated here in the second half of the Revelation. Now, what do we mean by total depravity? A lot of Christians think, well, the doctrine of total depravity teaches that man is as bad as he can be. Well, experience itself would tell you otherwise. There are many people who are kind human souls who don't believe in Jesus, but they'd give you the shirt off their back. The doctrine of total depravity does not teach that man is as bad as he can be, but that man is as bad off as he can be. It doesn't teach that man can't be good, but that he's not as good as he can be. And it underscores, as in Romans 3, when Paul takes a number of Old Testament passages and weaves them together, that the corruption within us deals 
with totality, that it deals not to uh, the extent in terms of how it might, or to the degree as to how it might be expressed, but to the extent of our depravity, that every portion of man has been fallen, that there's nothing left in us by which we can redeem ourselves. So the Bible would say man's heart is not basically good. The prophet wrote, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can understand it? There are three people sitting in your seat this morning. He said, no wonder it's so crowded. Three people. This is the person that you are. There is the person that you could be if you were filled with the Spirit and walking with God and totally committed. And there's the person that you have the capacity to be for evil. I mean, you think about it. If I could take every thought, every action that is evil that you've committed or I've committed, and we projected it on these screens this morning, you would never want to show your face in this place again. Genesis 8 says, the intent of man's heart is evil from his youth. Hitler is not an anomaly. Hitler was not a phenomenon. He is what each and every person potentially has the capacity to be. Thank God for death. Thank God that he didn't leave the tree of life available where Hitlers could never die and they had lived throughout all of human time. We are shaped in iniquity, the psalmist said. And Jesus, when he summarizes what man is like, quote, he says, you are evil. You think about it. I mean, think about King David. A man after God's own heart. Think about what he did. If you told David, David, you're going to take another man's wife, one of your choicest 30 soldiers who's out there in the field fighting, and you're going to take his wife, and then you're going to cover it over with deceit. You're going to give this man of integrity a note that speaks of his execution because he's so trustworthy, and you're going to take his life and a number of his soldiers. He'd say, oh, no, 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 no. I would never do that. But he did it. Because that's what we are in the inner recesses of our heart. And I want to tell you, after the church is caught up and raptured and gone, every vestige of salt and light for a period of time will be gone as well. And as soon as more salt and light comes in through conversions, they are executed. These bowls of wrath and man's reaction really prove and demonstrate the depravity of man. And it is a reminder to me of what Jonah said, salvation is of the Lord. Paul said, for by his doing you are in Christ Jesus. None of us can say, well, I, you know, was thinking about God and I read this book and I read that book and I figured it out and I decided I would become a Christian. No, there's none who seeks God. No, not one. Don't give one of those self-centered, man-honoring testimonies because that's not how it happened. If you read a book on apologetics, it's because God first sought you and he put the inkling in your heart to come to his son 
And yet here we see these people who are blaspheming the living God. There's a principle here concerning the nature of man. Secondly, there is a principle here concerning the nature of Satan. Jesus said whenever Satan speaks, he lies because he speaks from his own nature. He is a liar and the father of lies. And you see this deception through this unholy trinity and their doctrine that they speak of, according to verse 14, is accompanied by performing signs or miracles. The Bible tells us that these three unclean spirits likened to frogs do miracles, they do signs. And these people who have rejected God's signs from heaven will embrace Satan's signs. Suppose the devil were to deceive you. And suppose God asks you at his tribunal, why should I let you into heaven? You answered, well, Lord, uh, there was a time when I got religion. And I had a vision. An angel, one of your angels came and spoke to me. You know, I've heard more people share their dumb little out-of-body experiences. You know, people who die and go to heaven. And this book, you know, written by, there's two of them. I'm not even going to give the author credit. You know, these people who die and go to heaven, and then they write a book about it, and they produce videos and movies and Sunday school material, and evangelicals are are buying it up. Like, we need something beyond the Scripture to tell us what heaven is like. But most of the time, they always die, and they don't go to hell. They always go to heaven. And and I've had people that, why should God let you into heaven? Well, you know, I died on the operating table, and I went to heaven, and God told me everything was fine. God, that's what I would say to you. And I can hear that devil laugh and say, oh, you fool. That was not one of God's angels. That was one of my angels who spoke to you. You say, pastor, is that possible? Yes, the Bible says in 2 Corinthians 11 that even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. He doesn't usually come as some scaly monster with a pitchfork and a forked tail. He comes as a beautiful, marvelous angel of light. Suppose you stood before God and God said, why should I let you into my heaven? You respond, Lord, remember, I witnessed that glorious miracle from heaven. You gave me a sense of affirmation that I was yours. You let me witness a a ball of fire coming down out of heaven. That's why you should let me in. And then the devil laughs and says, you poor deluded fool. You should have read your Bible. Did you not read Revelation 13? He, speaking of the false prophet, who points people to Antichrist, performs great signs so that he makes fire come down out of heaven to the earth in the presence of men, and he deceives those who dwell on the earth because of the signs which it was given him. God asks another, why should I let you into my heaven? Well, Lord, I didn't just witness a miracle. I did a miracle. And not only did I do a miracle, I preached a sermon with that miracle. And the devil laughed and said, you didn't do that. I did that miracle through you. I gave you the power. Didn't you read what Jesus said? Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name cast out demons and in your name perform many miracles? And then I will declare to them, Not I once, but I never knew you. Never had a relationship with you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. Another steps up to God's tribunal. God says, why should I let you into heaven? 
Well, my pastor told me I was saved. He told me I was right with God and that I had my name in the Lamb's Book of Life and that I was going to heaven. And then I hear the vilest laugh of it all. You fool, you poor deluded fool. That was not one of God's pastors. That was one of my pastors. And now you can go to hell with your pastor. The Bible reminds us that Satan can disguise himself as an angel of light. Therefore, it is not surprising if his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness whose end will be according to their deeds. You say, Pastor Carl, I mean, if an angel telling you from heaven that you're, that you're saved doesn't mean you're saved. If fire coming down out of heaven doesn't mean you're saved. If you're doing a miracle and preaching a sermon and your own pastor telling you, then how would you ever know you're saved? Peter, when he recounts that magnificent experience up there in the Mount of Transfiguration, as glorious and as special as he had a glimpse of the coming kingdom, and he saw Moses and Elijah transfigured with Christ, he then said, we have a more and more sure word of prophecy. He's saying, as powerful as that is, The word of God is more sure and certain than what happened to us on the Mount of Transfiguration. Why? Because it is unchanging. It is settled forever in heaven. What is scary to me are some of these teachers who go around like they're getting a a text message from God, a fax from heaven. Well, God told me such and such. And they sound super spiritual, but they've gone beyond the bounds of Holy Scripture. A more sure vision. And the reason these things I've written to you, I've written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God in order that you may know that you have eternal life. We have God's Word, and we had better learn to stand upon it. And if you were to ask me, Carl, why should God let me in heaven? I would say, God, because you said in John 5, 24, truly, truly, I say to you, he who hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and does not come into judgment, but is passed out of death into life. Find God's word. Learn God's word. That is something you can stand by. Friends, I'm here to tell you a time is coming when the deception will be so great. There will be so many signs and wonders and miracles that will come upon this planet that people will think up is down and down is up and they'll slit their own mother's throat and think they're doing God a service. This chapter teaches that while it can and does happen today, there is coming a day in which it will happen like you've never, ever imagined. And not only from this unholy trinity, but Jesus said for false Christs and false prophets during this time will arise and show great signs and wonders so to mislead, if possible, even the elect. Truth and error are opposite sides of the same coin. For the Bible teaches to refuse truth is to embrace error. A man who refuses to listen to the remedy that his doctor gives him, he'll embrace a wrong remedy. A person who refuses to believe the creation account in Scripture, he'll embrace embrace evolution. If a person will not listen to someone who's telling them to get on the right road, they'll get on the wrong road. And if you reject the truth of God's holy, infallible, inerrant word, you will believe a lie. I learned something about 
the nature of man, the nature of Satan, but there's a principle here concerning the nature of God. I mean, have you ever asked yourself why God allows the horrors of the tribulation? Why not just end the whole thing and just let people go to heaven and, and send the, the rest into the eternal lake of fire? Because number one, he wants to bring the Jewish people to faith. Number two, he's going to keep all of his promises that he made to the people of Israel. And he's going to bring an untold multitude, what we have not been able to do in 2,000 years. This gospel during this time frame, that's the context of the verse. It will go out to the ends of the earth and every tribe, tongue, and nation will hear and people across the planet will believe. But there will be still some, even at this point in the tribulation, who have not received the mark of the beast, but neither have they believed in Jesus. But the hourglass is running out. So God's judgment, his tribulation wrath, it is a severe mercy and a reminder of the eternal wrath that will follow. Do you know Christ today? You say, oh, I hope I do. Do you know heaven is your home? I think it might be. You need to settle it. You need to nail that down and you can. You say, what do I need to do, pastor? You need to see that you in God's eyes are helpless to save yourself. That your sin has created a separation between you and your God. And good works can't remove that separation. You need to understand that the penalty for your sin is death. And unless you pay the death through all of eternity... It will never be satisfied. You can't do anything to pay for it except in an eternal lake of fire, but someone paid it for you. And if you will bring your sin to the cross, that is an acknowledgement that it's wrong. You say, well, you know, I, I, I sleep with this lady and we've been living together for five years, someone told me recently, but I'm born again. Really? Really? Those who live like this, have no inheritance in the kingdom of God. When you're born again, you're a new creature. And you come to Christ and you bring your sin, you admit that it's wrong, that it needs forgiveness and changing. And when you come to one who can save you, he will begin to change you. It is the gift of God, not of works, that none can boast. Our Father... Thank you for your word today. May we have ears to hear it. I pray today for someone who is maybe in Graniteville, maybe in Bluffton, maybe here, maybe live streaming somewhere, and they are uncertain about their eternal destiny. Father, thank you for your incredible invitation that because Jesus did what he did, that whoever will call on Jesus' name will be saved. Help someone to say, Lord Jesus, I am a sinner. I deserve judgment. I cannot save myself. But I bring my sin to you today for you to forgive me and to change me and to secure me for eternity. Lord Jesus, save me by your death and resurrection. Now, Father, most people who are here today have made that decision. And we say we love people. But we're so consumed with this world that you know in our heart of hearts we rarely ever 
care about the soul of another person. I thank you for those who passionately do. But Father, may it change. May we not just need the exuberance of our friend day that brings in three times the number of visitors because we invite that week. Help us as a way of life that as we go, everywhere we go, to make disciples. We need your grace because we know we are self-centered that we are consumed with ourselves. So fill us with the Spirit that He might have His way and sway through our lives. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.